Praise the Lord. Please have a seat. We come, and I hope you're ready for a revelation from the book of Revelation. Uh, we love the book. We love the capital R Revelation, but we also need small r Revelation as we open the, the, the book. I want to begin where we left off last Sunday. If you'd turn with me in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 11, verse 15. That verse says, the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Now, if you only mark one verse in the book of Revelation, I, I'd recommend that one. That's not the only verse I'd recommend marking, but, but my point is, this one is really the pinnacle. It's what all of history is moving toward, that moment when the kingdom of this world will become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever, and we will reign with him. Really, every prayer is moving toward that culmination. Now, the book of Revelation, you need to understand, was not written uh, to be studied um, chronologically because chapter 11, verse 15, is the end game. That's when the bell sounds and we're all done. That's Revelation 11, 15. So there are other events that are going to happen. Uh, so you, you don't think that, that that, and then after that, there's going to be this war in heaven, and then the Antichrist is going to appear, and all those other events. No, this is a, 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 a moment of culmination. And the book of Revelation shows us those high points throughout the book. But the question I want to just pose before we dig into new material today is... What is it that leads to the kingdom of this world becoming the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ? Because if that's the end game and that's the culmination, what is it that we can do to participate in that reality? It's a fair question, and the book of Revelation gives the answer. And there's two things. There's two roles that the church is to play, and no one can take our place. Angels cannot take our place. Uh, the, even Jesus himself, apart from the church, cannot take the place of the church's assignment to bring us to that place where the kingdom of this world will become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And those two things are, are the first one we came to in Revelation 8, and the second one we came to in Revelation 10 and 11. And what these two are is the church is to pray, Revelation 8, and the church is to preach, Revelation 10 and 11. That's our role on earth because the preaching of the church and the praying of the church is what prepares the kingdom of this world to become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. In chapter 8, we come to that place where in the opening of the scroll, you come to the, before the opening of the final uh, stamp on the scroll, 
is, is the silence in heaven when God bends down to listen to the prayers of the saints and the, they're being accumulated in the bowl and the incense is purifying our prayers and then God fills the bowl of prayer with his fiery presence and then throws it down to the earth in answer to prayer. Don't underestimate the role, the strategic nature of your prayers, our collective prayers, in bringing the kingdom of God on earth. The other piece is our witness, preaching. In Revelation 10, John is told, before the seventh trumpet sounds, six have sounded, and, but before the seventh, there's this interlude when John is given a vision, take this little booklet, eat it, and then he's told, now prophesy to the nations. And then it says in chapter 11 that there are these two witnesses, one representing the law, one representing the prophets, and, and representing really the, the role of the church to preach the word of God to all nations. So you've got these two chapters uh, elevating this strategic role of the church in witness, and then the culmination is the declaration, now the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. But don't miss that God is not gonna do that all by himself. You and I have a role to play in prayer and in preaching the advancing of his kingdom. Now back it up to Jesus. Jesus gave two instructions to the church. Jesus told the disciples, number one, pray the kingdom. Matthew chapter six, verse nine and 10. When you pray, say, your kingdom come. He told his disciples, you have a role to play in bringing the kingdom, I want you to pray the kingdom. Then he says in Matthew 24, verse 14, this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached to all nations, and then the end will come. So he charged them first to pray the kingdom, then to preach the kingdom. And now the book of Revelation is reinforcing these two roles of the church. Pray the kingdom, preach the kingdom. No one will take our place in these last days in bringing the kingdom to pray it and to, to preach it. We pray it before the Lord of heaven and we preach it before our neighbors. It's how the kingdom is being advanced in our day. Now, when the kingdom is advancing by prayer and by preaching, as the kingdom is being advanced, you can be assured there will be a clashing of kingdoms. This is not gonna be a smooth transition between the kingdom of the world becoming the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. There will be conflict. And we come now in these three chapters this morning, Revelation 12, 13, and 14, to the conflict within the book of Revelation. It's called War on the Saints. And uh, turn with me now to Revelation chapter 12. It's page 42 in your Black Revelation journal if you're following along in that. But uh, page 44, we come to this red dragon. 
but he's identified first in verse 3, but then he's explained who this red dragon is in verse 9. And it says, the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent, and in case we wonder, oh, is that the serpent in the Garden of Eden? The answer is yes. It says, who is called the devil and Satan. Now listen to how he's described, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. Now the throwing down of the enemy out of the heaven is because God created him as a holy angel. But he rebelled, and he was thrown down to the earth. Now not only was he thrown down, back it up to verse 4. It says, And his tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them down to the earth, and, and the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore a child, uh, he, uh, he might devour it. So here we come to this, this moment in history. After God created the angels, there was rebellion among the angels. The devil was thrown down, but his tail, this dragon's tail, it's a word picture, pulled down a third of the stars with him. The stars are the angels. So a third, and this is very specific, it's not 50%, it's 33.3% of the angels were thrown down with the devil. That's where we get that. Now, how many are we talking about? Well, earlier in the book of Revelation, you remember when we talked about angels, it says there are myriads upon myriads and 10,000 times 10,000. If you do the math, that's 100 million angels. Now, in all likelihood, there are 100 billion angels. Uh, I doubt if there's literally only 100 million, but we know that there's at least 100 million. A third of the angels, of the holy angels, were thrown out of heaven down to earth with the devil. So that means that there's at least 30 million evil spirits that are working under uh, the devil's leadership. So that's, the, that's the, the context we have here in, in uh, Revelation 12. The devil is the one at war against Christ, against the church, and there's another entity that the devil's at war against, and we're going to see this. If you notice, in the beginning of Revelation 12, we're introduced, before we're introduced to this dragon, we're introduced to a woman. It's a metaphor, a woman. And this woman is the one who's explained here in verse 4, who's going to give birth to this child. And it goes on in verse 5 to say she gave birth to a male child. And it describes the male. Well, who is the male child? The one who is to rule all nations with a rod of iron, but her child was caught up to God and uh, to his throne, and the woman fled into the wilderness. So, okay, so who is this male child? This is simple. The male child is Jesus. He's the one who was promised, and if you're taking notes in your Bible, page 44 in your black journal, write down this reference, Genesis 3.15. Because 
after the fall of Adam and Eve in the garden, before the Lord spoke to Adam or Eve, he spoke to the serpent, and he said, he will bruise your head, and you will bruise his heel. Genesis 3.15 promised a he, a male child who would be born. That male child from Genesis 3.15 is none other than the male child of Revelation chapter 12. Hallelujah. In addition, Genesis, or Isaiah chapter 9, it says, For to you a child is born. To you a son is given. So that's a male child. To you a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders. And he shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and of his peace, there is no end. Who is that male child? It's Jesus. The male child of Isaiah 9, verse 6, is the same male child here in Revelation 12, verse 5. So we know who the child is. So who's the woman? <laughs> I've heard this mistaught. I've heard the taught that the woman is the church. Uh, we know that the woman is, uh, the church rather, is the bride of Christ, and here it's a woman, and so it's easy to let other scripture outside of Revelation 12 interpret this wrongly. The church did not give birth to Jesus. Uh, quite the opposite, Jesus gave birth to the church. So how in the world can you call the woman here in Revelation 12 the church? No, what, what, metaphor of woman gave birth to Jesus. This is Israel. It's the nation of Israel that was promised the, this male child and who gave birth to the male child. It's clearly Israel. This is Israel. And, and where it says that, this, that the, this dragon, Satan, went off to wage war on the woman it's part of the root of anti-Semitism in the world today. It's, it's the warring of the devil against the nation, uh, the people of, of the, the Jewish people. There is in um, thought today a heresy called replacement theology. Uh, you might have heard of it. In fact, you may believe in it. Well, I must correct you. Uh, replacement theology says that the church is now Israel, and Israel has no part to play in God's economy any longer. You really cannot believe that if you believe the book of Revelation. If the devil is not done with, with uh, uh, running the Jews into the ground or trying to, do you think God's going to forsake his people? I don't think so. You cannot properly study the book of Revelation without seeing the strategic role that Israel will play in the last days. Now let me quickly say, when I talk about Israel, I am not talking about the state of Israel that now occupies that land. That state is as atheistic as any state in the world. And they are antichrist. They, are, they will, in history, build a temple before the fat lady sings. The Jews will build a temple. And 
they will sacrifice a heifer on that altar. And the blood of that animal is, is a total mockery of the death of Jesus. So don't think that's a good thing. Don't think that's a good thing. Don't be confused by political Israel today as you pray for the Jews. We're not there yet. And Israel is going to become more anti-Christ and more atheistic uh, as time goes on. And that building of that temple, after the Jews use it for who knows how long, will then be overtaken by the beast we're about to be introduced to in the next chapter. And uh, when that happens, that beast, the Antichrist, will use the same temple that the Jews built for all kinds of abominations. And that's what Jesus talked about in Matthew 24 as being the desecration of sacrilege. It's the ultimate in your face against God next to the murdering of Christ. It's the Antichrist. It's the spirit of the Antichrist that, that is still at work um, in our world. And um, even though the same spirit will be mobilizing the building of the temple for ulterior motives so that it can be desecrated, that same spirit that is, in, in a sense, allowing Israel to rise uh, politically is the same spirit that hates Israel and will be out to destroy it sooner or later. With this understanding, what we're now we've, we've seen this invisible enemy of the church, the devil, uh, called the devil, Satan, the red dragon, the deceiver of all the nations. He works by deception. Well, we, we've clearly identified him. We have to wait two weeks to see his destiny. It's in Revelation chapter 20. Uh, be here in, in two weeks and we're going to see what happens in the future for the devil. It's uh, a, a great defeat, the ultimate defeat. But in the meantime, he will wage war. And part of his war will be, and follow this, the empowering of a political leader and a religious leader, the ultimate false prophet. And those are the two beasts here before us in Revelation chapter 13. Look at chapter 13, verse 1. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, these, these, and, and, uh, with ten uh, diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its head. All these horns, heads, this represents political authority. This is a political entity. Um, and we're going to get in a week and two weeks, we're going to see the fall of Babylon. Babylon is the economic beast called the prostitute. It basically is globalism. And we're going to see the role that that plays. But, but this morning we come to this first beast. Now, and I want to identify this because it will help take the veil off your eyes and will relieve you of unnecessary fears. This beast will be 
basically Satan incarnate. And when you think about it, it is totally a last-ditch effort of the devil to try to, to attack God, to attack Christ, to attack the church, and to attack the Jews. It's his last-ditch effort. The incarnation of Christ was not God's last-ditch effort. It says Jesus was slain before the foundations of the earth. God planned the death of his own son to be the redeemer so that he might rightfully own all things because he created them and he's going to repurchase them with his blood. And so that was, that was a forethought, not an afterthought. This is an afterthought. Because the devil can't do it any other way, he's going to localize himself, something that the devil would hate to do. But he's going to localize himself in one person who will be the devil incarnate. And he's known here as the beast. Now the beast will have supernatural power, but raised up alongside him will be the second beast. And this beast is the false prophet. Basically, he's the PR guy for the first beast. He, everything he does is to promote the first beast. Even though they hate each other, they're going to be in a symbiotic relationship. The devil hates everything. And, um, but these two, even though they, they're going to work together, they hate each other. Um, but they're going to work together. And th this, this second beast will be given power to work all kinds of miracles. Just like... Um, when Moses went before Pharaoh in Egypt, he performed these miracles, and then the magicians were able to perform certain limited miracles. So there will be in our day, and you're going to hear about it. I am, I, in fact, if you're alert, it's already happening. There are false demonic miracles going on in the world. Because of that, we don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. We, we are card-carrying supernaturalists. We want every miracle God has for us, but we are very intentional to reject any demonic miracle. We don't want power from the devil. We don't want any of that. We don't want any clairvoyance. We don't want horoscopes. We don't want Ouija boards. We don't want tarot cards. We don't want crystal balls. Uh, all that demonic seeing, because that's, that is all rooted in deception. We want revelation. We want everything God has for us, and we need, especially coming down the stretch, we need the supernatural power of our God at work in us. We want to be able to pray for miracles. We want to see healings. Our God is that kind of a God. And don't think for a moment that you've got to change your theology because the days are going to get evil. No, we are activating all that is in here that is perfectly safe for us. But as this second beast rises up as a false prophet to the first, they will require their name to be on everything. It says explicitly that the second beast will lead, basically be the worship leader of the whole earth on behalf of the beast, leading every, everyone in every nation, every language group, every ethnicity to worship the beast. That's his role. He's, he's a, a, a perverted worship leader. 
And in the middle of this, they will require the mark of the beast to somehow be transmitted to everyone. Uh, or you're going to be denied rights. They will control the banking. They will control every credit card. They'll control your SIM card in your phone. They will control the platform for your computer. They will tr control immigration. They will control every checkpoint um, where you would scan your passport. All those things, they're going to control it all. And they will. And those that, at that moment in time, there will be two marks, one on every single person. There will be those that have the mark of the lamb, and there'll be those that have the mark of the beast. And the mark of the beast is known here as 666. You've heard this, 666. Why six? Well, six is man's number. Man was created on the sixth day. The, triple, the triplicate repetition of six to become 666 represents the best man can achieve without God. And that is the root of iniquity. The root of iniquity is watch what I can do without God. And that is the definition of humanism, trying to control the world because there is no God who oversees it. It's the definition of humanism. 666 is the mark of humanism, the ideology of humanism. So in chapter 12, we're introduced to the real beast, the devil, the invisible beast, behind these two other flunkies. Then we've got the Antichrist, and then we've got the false prophet who will make the, the, the Antichrist look good. These three become the unholy trinity of the last days, the unholy trinity. Uh, fortunately, we've got our trinity, hallelujah. We've got the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But there will be this unholy trinity, the devil, the unseen enemy of, of the believer, and the two seen enemies, uh, the beast and the false prophet. But I want you to see something. Before we are introduced to the second beast, verse 9 of chapter 13 gives this amazing exhortation. It's as if there's a pause between, from one beast to transition to the next, and it says... If anyone has an ear, let him hear. What's this saying? What this is saying, it's activating your ability as a born-again believer to receive truth, to receive revelation from the Holy Spirit. He was an ear, let him hear. It's activating your ability to hear. And the fact is, in the last days, you will either have an ear to receive revelation or you will be receiving deception. That's the, that's, the, that's the choice. And then, in verse 10, the end of verse 10 says, here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. 
Here's a call. You see, before we're, we're brought on to be introduced to the second, the false prophet, the second beast, there's this amazing exhortation. Here's a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. There are those that teach you, well, you're not going to be here. You're, the saints are all going to be taken out. That's not what this says. This is a call for the endurance of the saints. Endure. Get ready. Be strong. Don't think you're going to hunker down. Don't think you need to bankroll millions of dollars to coast through uh, the, the, the tribulation. Don't, don't think that. No, this is a call for the endurance of the saints. God is calling you to be strong, to endure, because you have a role to play on earth. It's to pray and to preach, to bring the kingdom. That will never end. Never end. In fact, at the end of chapter 14, no, it's verse uh, 12. Chapter 14, verse 12. Listen to what it says here again. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. These are not just Jews. These are all believers in Jesus. So after being introduced to the unseen enemy, the devil, in chapter 12, the first half of chapter 13, the first beast, the devil incarnate, what's God say to the church? Endure. You're going to make it. Don't think for a moment. You don't have to be afraid of this guy. And then after we're introduced to the second beast, what's God say? This is a call for the endurance of the saints. You're going to make it. You're going to be fine. I've got you. Hallelujah. And after these two beasts, chapter 14 is one of the, the, the greatest breaths of fresh air. In fact, there are two revelations of Jesus in this chapter. First of all, in the first five verses of chapter 14, we see Jesus leading, teaching a new song. How would you like to have Jesus as your song leader this morning? Can you imagine? He's going to teach us a new song. When? After a bunch of people get the mark of the beast, he's, Jesus is going to be singing. Is Jesus going to be sweating it out? No, he's going to be singing. Are we going to be sweating it out? No, we're going to be singing. Hallelujah, I love this. Then after Jesus leads in song, then we see three angels come out, and, and they're declaring the, the advancing of the kingdom. And then we see Jesus again. He's harvesting the world. The harvest is going to be done. Why? Because the church has done its job. We've preached the gospel to all nations, and then Christ is going to harvest the earth. Hallelujah. But in the middle of this is a call for us to identify the reality that we don't have to sweat it out. We don't have to bite our nails. We don't have to live in anxiety. We don't have to hoard and stockpile money for these hard times. We don't have to wonder what, what's going to happen to our children, our grandchildren, uh, with the mark of the beast. How are we going to travel? We don't need to worry about that. Why? Now listen to this, church. I give you this morning Revelation 12, verse 11. And they overcame him. Who? The devil. They overcame the devil by three things. And these are not three equal things. 
Not three equal things, but three things. They overcame the devil. They, who's they? It's the church. It's us. It's you and me. We overcome the devil by three things. The blood of the lamb. The blood of the lamb. The same lamb who has the right to take the scroll and and open it up, holding the final events of history. The, The blood of the lamb. We take the blood of the lamb. That's how we overcome the enemy. The same blood of the lamb who crushed Satan's head. The one who is greater in us than he that is in the world. This one who came to destroy the works of the devil, 1 John 3, 7. By the blood of the lamb, we overcome the enemy. The devil himself, we overcome the devil. We overcome. We know Jesus overcame. It would be awesome if if verse 11 said, Jesus overcame him by the blood, by his own blood. But this is so much more relevant. It's so much more powerful. This is for you. If you're a brand new Christian, this is for you. If you you believed in Jesus today for the first time, this is for you. You overcome him. Hallelujah. We overcome him by the blood of the lamb. But the blood always needs to be applied. It does no good if we just intellectually believe in it and we do not apply it to our daily lives. And and notice the next part, the second part. We overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of our testimony. What is a testimony? A testimony is a story that explains how Jesus did something for you you could not have done for yourself. That's a testimony. If Jesus has done something for you that you could not have done for yourself, that's your testimony. For so long, I've heard this even preached. Some witness with words and some witness without words. I'm sorry, that's not what this says. It doesn't say they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by their lifestyle. It says by the word of their testimony. God wants you to use your word. to to connect with others and with God and to glorify Christ by the word of your testimony. You know the word testimony here, if you're taking notes, page 44 in your black journal, right off to the side, you can circle by the word of their testimony, circle testimony, put a line to the side. It's the word in Greek, M-A-R-T-Y-R, martyr. The same word we saw last week translated witness, is here translated testimony. By the word of your testimony. What is a martyr? It's it's a truth teller who's willing to stand alone even if it costs him his life. That's That's a martyr. And so the next one just flows. If you've got a word of testimony that you can give to tell someone else of what Jesus did for you that you couldn't have done for yourself. You've got a testimony, and God wants you to use words to communicate that testimony, and when you do, that seals the deal, you will not love your life even unto death. 
You're a truth teller. If they kill me, it's no big deal. I'm going to be better off. To live is Christ, to die is gain. Now, I've got to just, I've got to ask you. When I was a kid, and I first got born again when I was 13, I remember, like, before I turned 14, I heard a sermon on the beast and the mark of the beast, and I thought, oh, that's so disgusting. What if I blow it? What if I mess up? What if I, in a weak moment, bow and, and give in to the, the beast? I don't know, if, was I the only one that ever thought that, or did anybody else ever wonder that, that you have that little insecurity? But let me just explain this. Every fear is linked to the fear of death. The fear of death is the, is the, is the whole enchilada. And you know, like if you're, if you're afraid of getting cancer, well, what is that? Ultimately, it's the fear of death. If you're afraid to talk to your classmate at school about Jesus, what is that? Well, it's the fear of rejection, but it ultimately leads to death. Death to your reputation, death to your popularity. I mean, it's all linked. So ultimately, all fear goes back to the fear of death. If Jesus can beat in you your fear of death, you will never need to fear the beast or his the false prophet. You don't have to fear anything once Jesus conquers your fear of death. And that's why this verse is so perfect. It's so complete. And they overcame him, the devil, himself. Why are we worried about what the beast is going to do or the false prophet when, when we've got victory over the devil himself? They overcame the devil by the blood of the Lamb. And they strapped themselves to the sacrifice of Christ. And the word of their testimony. What Jesus did in my life that I couldn't have done for myself. And at that point, I will not fear death. And I won't love my life to keep myself from death. Because I love Christ more. That's the church. I want you to realize what Revelation 12, verse 11, gives to you. It gives you a clear definition of your identity in Christ. If you take the blood of the Lamb, you are now in Christ. If you take the blood of the lamb for the source of your cleansing, your deliverance, victory over sin, over the devil, that blood then gives you your testimony and it completely frees you from fear. Psalm 23, I will fear no evil for thou art with me. When God's with me, I, I don't fear any evil. No evil. My brothers and sisters, today, take your identity in Christ. And when you know your identity in Christ, 
you will step into your authority in Christ. You have authority. You have authority to pray the kingdom. You have authority to preach the kingdom, to bring the kingdom to earth in prayer and in declaration. Hallelujah. Would you stand with me this morning, please? Father God, we come and put ourselves under the love of Jesus. We put ourselves under the blood of Jesus. Lord, we receive the blood of Jesus by faith to wash us from the inside out and make us clean, to deliver us, Lord, to break the bonds of fear off of us and that ultimate fear of death, break it off of us because greater is he who is in us than he that is in the world. The only way to get rid of fear is the presence of a higher power. And the higher power is the presence of the Lord our God. If fear has been crippling your life, if fear has been increasingly speaking lies to you, intimidating you, if even back from childhood you've been afraid of the mark of the beast or the Antichrist, his appearance in the world scene, um, listen to me. If you've been afraid of that, the devil already has a toehold in your life. You don't need to live with that. Today, you can receive a higher power, and it's, it's the blood of Christ. It's the presence of Christ, the conqueror. So if, if fears have been displacing the love of Christ, in your heart and mind. Would you just admit that? Open your heart to the Lord and say, Father, I confess my fears, legitimate fears. I confess them and I expose them. And right now I receive the love of God the Father in Jesus Christ. Come into me now. Fill my heart with the love of God in Christ. Wash me clean. Overcome my insecurities overcome my frailties and kick out, kick to the curb my fears in Jesus' name. In Christ, I am accepted. I don't have to fear rejection any longer. In Christ, I'm protected because of the blood of Jesus. Father, thank you. Continue to do things in my life that are impossible for me apart from you. And expand my testimony that I can be a truth teller down the stretch of whatever time I have left on earth that I will be willing to stand alone and tell the truth about my testimony. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. I felt in my own spirit a deliverance. Hallelujah. Hallelujah.